Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing our series on the eldership, and this morning we're going to be looking at qualifications for elders. You'll find our Bible reading this morning on page 992 of the Pew Bibles, page 992. And we're going to read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 16, the whole chapter. Uh, really, our focus this morning is going to be on verses 1 to 7, but we will be making reference to other parts of this passage as well. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's page 992 of the Pew Bibles, and this is God's word to us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into, into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacon, deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll find that passage on page 992 of the Pew Bibles, page 992. Uh, this morning we're moving on in our series on the eldership. Uh, we spent the past two weeks thinking about what the Bible says about the church. And we needed to do that because elders serve the church. And if we don't understand what the Bible says about the church, then we won't understand what the Bible teaches about elders. Uh, this morning and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at qualifi qualifications for elders as they're set out for us by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Before we look at what the Bible says, though, I have a few practical things to mention in terms of this process. I should have mentioned last week that we're seeking up to six new elders. If you've already collected your voting paper, you will have noticed that. In relation to your voting paper, let me remind you that it must be signed by you and that you shouldn't propose more than the number required. You can, of course, choose to propose less than the number required, but you shouldn't propose more than six names. And the final practical matter is that ballot boxes have been placed at all doors 
So that means that you have the opportunity from today to return your voting papers. Uh, the closing date for voting papers is next Sunday after the evening service. Uh, church law does require us to be strict about that, so please bear that in mind. Closing date for voting papers is next Sunday evening. Now, we want to look at what the Bible says about qualifications for the eldership. Uh, we're going to take two Sundays to unpack this, sub, uh, this topic, this subject. There are six qualifications mentioned in 1 Timothy 3. There's one more important biblical qualification that isn't mentioned in this passage, and it's one that we're going to add in because it's important as well. In total, then, we have seven qualifications to think through, and we're going to think through four this morning and three next Sunday. Before we go any further, though, let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know that it is true and living and active. And we pray now that as we consider the role of elders in your church, that you would come by your spirit and help us understand what the Bible says. We realize that we can't do better than what your word says. So help us to come under the authority of it and realize that you are still speaking through it by your spirit. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been keeping an eye on the news over recent times, you'll know that the headline, headlines consistently tell us about rich, powerful men who have abused positions of influence. A scandal after scandal has unfolded before us, particularly in the political world, leaving many of us wondering, are there any honourable leaders left? In our modern world, it's increasingly apparent that character and morality matters less than competence and ability. And that's perhaps best illustrated by recent leaders of the United States of America and the United Kingdom, who are clearly two very intelligent men, but their personal character leaves a lot to be desired. The, the, there does seem to be a trend within society generally that allows people to have significant power and influence but at the same time allows them to live in whatever way they please and live by whatever moral code they want. That wasn't always the case. In 1963, the Conservative government, led by Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, was significantly damaged by the Profumo affair. John Profumo was a member of Cabinet and was alleged to have had an affair with a young woman. He was forced to resign because of what he did, because what he did was considered as an unforgivable offence in British politics. It's hard to imagine the same being true now, given the shifts in morality within our society. Nowadays, how someone lives, their character and morals, doesn't really matter. The one place where that does remain the case, though, is the church. The church is almost the final place where character matters more than anything else. Sadly, there have been stories of people with poor character and terrible morals being put into church leadership but broadly speaking, the church has always understood that to be in leadership means that there must be an evident quality to your life in all sorts of areas. That's what we're going to be thinking about over the next two Sundays, the qualifications for elders. First Timothy 3 is a very important passage for us as we consider this issue. First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, and in it he writes about church order and conduct Throughout the letter, Paul is concerned with the character of Christians, and the key verse of the letter comes in chapter 3, verse 15. Paul wants his readers to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
In the passage we're going to be thinking about this morning, it's clear that elders are called to take care of the church of God. And that's an important point for us. The church belongs to God and not us. That's clear from verse 15, but it's also clear from verse 5. Paul talks about God's church. So this church is not my church. This is not Stephen Kennedy's church. It doesn't belong to any of our elders. It belongs to God. Those who are elders are, in a sense, caretakers of God's church. It's God's church because he has a particular love for it, having purchased it with the blood of his son. And we should understand that he has ordained and appointed elders in order to express through them the profound care he has for the church. It's as though God is taking this extraordinarily precious possession and is saying, take care of this for me. Imagine that you were asked to look after the crown jewels and a high officer of state said to you, will you look after these for me? Imagine it, you would drop everything, you would leave all that you're doing and you would look after this precious, precious thing. Well, what, what we need to realize about the church is that the living God has asked elders to look after what, what are going to be the, the, the jewels in his crown on the last day. The church of his only begotten son is nothing less than his crown jewels. And he says to elders, care for that for me. With that in mind, we shouldn't be surprised that God sets a, a, a high bar in terms of qualifications for the eldership. You would expect him to be exceedingly careful given the nature of his son's sacrifice. God is continuing to build his church through the work of Christ and he is working by his spirit in our time and generation. One day his church will appear in all its glory. Until then, elders have the honor and privilege of shepherding and caring for God's people. Well, what qualities does the Bible tell us to look for in elders, though? Well, what, what qualities should you be thinking about as you consider who you will elect? Well, there are four we want to highlight this morning. Paul highlights the quality of an elder's personal life, family life, relationships, and work life. We're going to take each of those in turn this morning. But the first area that Paul mentions, mentions is an elder's personal life. A good way to think about these points is to think about concentric circles, so circles within circles. The center circle, the bullseye, if you like, is an elder's personal life. Look at verse 1 and the first, uh, the first half of verse 2. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. So an elder must be above reproach. What Paul simply means here is that the primary qualification for Christian leadership in the church isn't that leaders are greatly gifted or well-educated, but that they have a consistent personal character. Now, we need to take just one step back before unpacking that. This goes without saying, but it's worth saying all the same. Elders are to be Christians. They're to be people who have personally trusted in the Lord Jesus and and, and have accepted him as their Lord and Savior and King. That, that has long been the understanding of our church family, but it's sadly not the understanding of all churches. That, that, that's the first and most basic qualification. And once that's in place, the next is that an elder would have a consistent personal character. You should notice that Paul doesn't just mention personal character in verse 2. He also mentions it in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
So the primary emphasis is on an elder's personal life. An elder should be above reproach among people within his church family and of good reputation among those who are outside of the church. Paul tells us what this looks like in practice and reality. In verse 2, he speaks about the need for elders to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. This focus on Christian character is so important and so fundamental. The, the, The general movement of Scripture is that our usefulness in the service of God is closely connected and closely tied with our personal character. It has been said, what we are before, What we are matters more to God than what we do. What we are matters more to God than what we do. And that's true generally for all believers. Upright Christian character is vital for all of us. Inner consistency in our lives is going to be the crucial thing in our usefulness. If that is important for all, how much more important is it for an elder in God's church? It's why Peter, when writing about the role of the shepherd, says that elders must be examples to the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, verse 3. It's why when writing to young Timothy that Paul tells him not to mind about his age, but to be an example. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The point is that men and women inside and outside of the church are going to be far more impressed by what elders are than, what, by, than by what they do or say. So that's the first area then, an elder's personal life. The second area Paul talks about is an elder's family life. This is the next circle out, so second circle, bullseye is an elder's personal life. Next circle is an elder's family life. Look look at verse 2 again. Paul says, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So husband of one wife, this requirement has been widely debated What I understand it to mean is that an elder must be a one-woman man. But just like the last point, we need to take a step back and think about a broader point before unpacking this specific point. From what Paul says here, we can understand that he's saying that the office of elder is only open to men. Now, Paul has explained this in the previous chapter. In 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, Paul lays out what leadership in the church looks like, looks like throughout all generations. According to Paul, women can't preach or teach in a mixed gathering and they can't hold ruling office. When he writes then that an elder must be the husband of one wife, he's simply being consistent. It's the logical outworking of what he's already said. Now I could say it quite a lot and qualify what I've just said. I have covered this issue several times since I've come to Bucna. I think you know me well enough now to know that I'm not a misogynist and that I'm not just stirring the pot. The the issue for us when it comes to who is eligible to serve as an elder comes down to what authority we give the Bible. Are we willing to say that the Bible is an errant, the special, final revelation of God to us? Or are we instead going to be led and discipled by the world's thinking on this issue? It's really an authority question. Where is our authority? The word or the world. Now, some of you might have questions about all of that. It's a hot issue at the moment. I have literally just scratched the surface. Please get in touch with me if you have a question. I'd be more than happy to talk it through with you, give you some resources, and have a chat with you about it so that you can work all of it out. That's some background to what Paul says here, but what does he mean? Husband of one wife. Well, he's saying that an elder must be a one-woman man. There's a story told about Winston Churchill attending a formal banquet in London. 
And the dignitaries who were there were asked the question, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? Naturally, everyone was curious as to what Churchill would say. He was sitting beside his wife, and when it finally came to him to answer, he stood up and said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, and here he paused to take his wife's hand, Lady Churchill's second husband. Churchill was many things, but he was a one-woman man. The standard here is particularly high. There's a common misinterpretation of this phrase, and it's that an elder can have had only one wife. If he had been divorced or widowed and remarried, he couldn't be an elder. But that's not what Paul is saying. The, the, The moral loophole in that interpretation is that a man can be married to only one woman his whole life and not be a one-woman man. Hope you see that nuance. The correct interpretation of this phrase is about the quality of an elder's marriage. The man is truly a one-woman man. There are no other women in his life. He's totally faithful. He doesn't flirt. There are no dalliances. My former boss in Lurgan used to talk about elders having only one princess. Paul expands on an elder's family life in verses 4 and 5. Just look at what he says. He says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So Paul draws an analogy between a leader's family and God's church. A minister or elder is called into leadership in two families, his own and God's church. And the family is to be the training ground for God's church. The argument is straightforward. If he can't look after his own family, he can't be expected to look after God's. The way someone leads their family will tell you a lot about how they would lead in a church family. One of the most important references for a church leader is what goes on behind the front door of their house. It's it's worth clarifying what Paul isn't saying again. He isn't saying that if your children aren't Christians, you can't be an elder. If he was, then men who don't have children or who are unmarried wouldn't be allowed to be elders either. But Paul is talking about younger children obeying and listening to their parents. Most children in their early years listen to and believe what their parents believe. He just wants fathers, the spiritual heads of households, to influence their children at home, to model what it means to be a follower of Jesus in everyday life, to say things like, you know, sometimes daddy needs forgiveness as well. As children grow up, they may abandon the truth, but they make that decision themselves. As a young adult or older, their decision doesn't disqualify elders. When it comes to an elder's family life, there should be evidence that an uh, an elder or a would-be elder is leading their family well. As a family, everyone can do X, Y, and Z during the week, but at 12 noon on a Sunday, they're in church to worship together. And dad wants to be there. Dad is eager to go. We've covered two areas of an elder's life so far. We have two to go. Won't take us, won't take us as long to talk about the next two. The, the, the third area, the third circle, is an elder's relationships. An elder's relationships. Uh, verse 7, Paul talks about human relationships beyond the home. Just look at what he says. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Then also in verse 3, that that elders are not to be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. Now, we all know that some people are peace breakers rather than peacemakers, but an elder must be gentle. In other words, they should be patient and forbearing with people, long-tempered and not short-tempered. 
What's in view here is not only how an elder or would-be elder deals with people and their attitude towards others, it also includes how they speak about other people. All of us who are followers of Jesus have human relationships with people who aren't Christians and who don't go to church. The call for all of us is to be an example to others. But we all know there are some people whose human relationships leave an enormous amount to be desired. It's very damaging to the church when an elder has a reputation inside or outside of the church for being frosty, difficult, angular, obtuse. And by elder, I mean teaching elder, a minister, or a ruling elder. Teaching elders, ministers can be frosty, difficult, angular, and obtuse as well. The, the, the evil one is mentioned twice in this passage, verse 6 and verse 7. And that's a reminder to us that, that Satan has an interest in attacking leaders in the church. He's an interest in discrediting the gospel by discrediting ministers and elders. It's an old trick, but it has a long history. The evil one has used it for centuries, and it's still an effective strategy today. How, how many of us know people who say, who, who, who say or have said, I, I would never go to church because of so-and-so? And in some cases, the so-and-so is the minister or an elder. It's true for us all, though that how we interact with, with people will tell others a lot about us. Elders and believers need to be careful about not disgracing the name of Christ. Personal life, family life, general relationships, and then an elder's work life. That's the fourth circle. Look, look at what Paul writes at the end of verse 3 and also the end of verse 8. An elder should not be a lover of money, and they shouldn't be greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 8 refers to deacons, but it can be applied to elders as well. An elder must be crystal clear about their motives in serving God and his people, and financial gain must never be one of them. Each of these two phrases make a specific point. The first, not a lover of money, indicates that someone's attitudes towards money must be that of, of holding so lightly to it that they have learned to live both with and without it. The second phrase, not pursuing dishonest gain, takes this a step further and pleads for total integrity in all financial dealings. Even though it's in the section on deacons, Paul in Titus 1 verse 7 uses exactly the same phrase when speaking about elders. There's a call for integrity here when it comes to material things, money and work and so on. And those principles can also be applied to other areas of work too. If you deal with money with integrity, then you need to treat people with integrity and, and not chastise them or domineer over them in a work setting. It's the same as the last point. How many Christians have been discredited, discredited because of how they have handled a work situation, be it in an office, on a farmyard, in a shop, or wherever else? So Paul talks us through four concentric circles when it comes to qualifications for elders. The center circle, most important circle, is an elder's personal life. Elders should be followers of Jesus and should be walking with God and should be examples for others. Second circle is an elder's family life. Elders should be one women men and should bring up their family in the ways of Christ. Third circle is an elder's relationships. They've got to be marked by integrity and uprightness. And then the fourth circle is an elder's work life. And again, the call is for integrity and godliness. Now, in all of this, we must remember and look to the sole king and leader of the church, the Lord Jesus. Well, what about Jesus' leadership skills? Well, what did he do for the church? Well, he bled for it, didn't he? 
He suffered and died also that the church, his people, might be his treasured possession. As we think about leadership, we can do no better than looking to Jesus' example. Jesus was someone whose personal life was marked by a reliance on his heavenly father. He was someone who was faithful in his home. He honored his earthly father and mother and kept the law of God perfectly. When it came to dealing with others, Jesus was compassionate and kind. One of the best examples of that is Mark's account of Jesus encountering the rich young ruler. Do you remember the story? Young impressionable man strides up to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus rattles off some of the commandments and the young man replies, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. What does Mark record next? And Jesus looking at him, loved him. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. When it came to relationships, Jesus was compassionate and kind. He spoke hard truth when he had to, but he dealt lovingly with those he came to save. And Jesus worked with honesty and integrity. He was a carpenter before he was nailed to a cross of wood. It's his spiritual work on our behalf, though, more than his material earthly work that matters for us. He died the death that we deserve. He is the true leader of God's people. He is our elder brother and our ultimate example of how we are to live. These are important days for us as a church family. We should be praying that the Lord would raise up men with the character we've considered this morning. The role of an elder within the church is a high calling, but it's a beautiful calling. It's a privilege to serve in Christ's church. The church has always understood that to be in leadership means that there must be an evident quality to your life in all sorts of areas. We've covered four this morning and we'll cover some more next week. In some ways, serving as an elder in the church is an unenviable task. It's a high calling. But with that calling comes the promise of help from the Lord himself. Well, what kind of leaders are we looking for then? Leaders whose personal lives speak to others about their love for Christ. Leaders whose family lives show that they value the church. And leaders whose relationships and work lives speak to others around them. Godly elders are really important to the church. May the Lord grant us wisdom as we consider who will lead in our church family in the coming days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it helps us as we think about how churches are to function and what a church's leaders are to be like. We pray that you'd help us to study this passage thoroughly over the next few weeks to understand the high calling that it is to be an elder in your church. But we pray generally for all of us that we would live in light of this passage. It's a high calling to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. So help all of us who know and love him to live in light of your word, to honor Christ in our everyday situations and to be an example to others of how we're to live. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would continue with us as we think through these matters and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.